Situation Room, episode 99 for June the 19th, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm joining you from Oklahoma City, where we are continuing to enjoy really kind of a mild summer. We started off a little hot, and it was a pretty lovely day here. And anyway, uh, looking forward to some breaks coming up and we're at a different day because of some, some travel. And so, uh, Jason, I'm glad the fires are not what are chasing you out of Missoula, Montana. Currently. <laughs> That's true. And in fact, we've been having a pretty mild summer ourselves and it's been raining here for a good three or four days now. So, uh, the good news is, is we haven't had to turn the sprinkler on at all for our lawn and yet our lawn is lushy green so that's uh, always a good sign especially on um, the beginning of the summertime in missoula and again my name is jason eifer i am the assistant director and curriculum director of the montana digital academy the state virtual school located on the university of montana campus and um i'm probably some other stuff that i'm forgetting right now but uh this is the edtech situation room podcast where we take uh this week's news headlines and take a look at them um, uh, from an educational technology lens. And the reason why we're broadcasting a day early is that while West is, is, is obviously got some stuff going on that, that will take him away for the next uh, two weeks, actually, from the podcast, um, I am attending the ISTE conference, or the International Society for Technology and Education. It used to be called NEC, I think was the previous name, if I remember correctly. And there's a conversation going on. I've seen somewhere where they're changing the name again. Um, and, and really? so that will be called something else at some point. It's going to officially be called the technology boat show. We're just going to stop take, yeah. trying to trick people <laughs> and let you know what it's all about. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, that's something we'll, we'll talk about tonight, but Wes and I talked or want to talk a little bit about, we've both been to the ISTE conference a number of times and we don't always get a go, but when we do, it's, it's always a great opportunity to collaborate with colleagues, meet people that you may have seen or, 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 or found out about online and see them in person. But, uh, uh, we thought we'd give you a couple quick tips uh, based on a couple of folks who've been to the conference a few times for those of you that are newbies. My guess is is that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not an ISTE newbie, but on the odd chance that you are, we we have some, what I hope is sage advice for you about how to make this conference good for you. So what would be your top or starting piece of advice for new ISTE uh, attendees. But before I do that, just as a, a piece of housekeeping, uh, I am the director of technology at the Cassidy yeah. School, starting my fourth year. Forgot to say that at the beginning. Um, and yes, we'll be we'll be off for the next two weeks. So uh, the the in two weeks is actually July fourth. So I think uh, here as we celebrate our Independence Day in the United States, that is. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose if we wanted to, we could. We can schedule a different day. So I don't know. Maybe we'll leave that one up in the air if, if Jason is around and we can do either a Tuesday or a Thursday, but we won't, we won't do that on the fourth, but we do want to tell you the link. It's edtechsr.com slash links. And if you happen to be joining us live, um, we will pull up the chat room and would love to uh, engage with you on the chat if you happen to, to be able to catch us live. So probably my, my top tip for ISTE is just to, to, to take it slow, not be overwhelmed, and to also embrace the lounges. You know, I have found for the last number of years, <clears throat> the best place to sit and watch the keynote is actually not in the keynote. It's to find a lounge where it's there's a live telecast and you can sit with some other folks. And so I oftentimes enjoy following the Twitter hashtag and the back channel discussion that's going on uh, with the keynote. And uh, I mean, it can be fun to, to be, you know, in the room. Uh, literally, but it's actually, 
I think most exciting to just be um, around other folks who are interested in these topics and are discussing them. And, you know, the keynote creates immediacy, which is different from the rest of the time at ISTE, where there are, you know, umpteen hundred sessions basically going at all different times and people are going all different kinds of directions. So I think that's my number one um, piece of advice. And then, you know, to tie in with that, um, just find the lounges in general and, and connect with people there. Um, going to some of the, the smaller events and the smaller meetups and uh, sometimes the poster sessions. And those are the times when people are really just, you know, kind of right. hanging out and talking. Um, I, I find generally the best nuggets to, to come from those kinds of interactions. So I'd say that's my number one tip. How about you? Dr. Knifer. Uh, I would double on the lounges, uh, and in fact, one of the things you'll notice is that the sheer size of this conference makes it difficult to attend and run. And so um, uh, they oftentimes hit, we include vendors and special guests, almost 30,000 people show up for this conference. And that's a that's a mid-sized Montana town, right? And so you need to be aware of, of, of that fact when you're going into it. And so, you know, if you, uh, I having been both in physically present with keynote speakers and in a lounge, watching a broadcast closed circuit TV version of a keynote speaker I really would appreciate I really appreciate being in the lounge more for a couple of different reasons first um, you don't feel the need to be totally attentive to the speaker you can have conversations with side folks and be able to kind of respond to what you talk to but also I don't want to stand in line for 20 minutes uh, 20 minutes uh, an hour and a half with my memory from uh, ISTE 2014 in Atlanta to be able to see a keynote speaker close up or not even close up but in the same room when you can go sit in a lounge, grab power for your devices, find like-minded people to have conversations with, and engage in that conversation. So very much a thumbs up to the, the notion of the lounges. Um, the other piece I would also say, too, is don't try to do everything, right? One of the things that I think is kind of a mistake about SD is that a lot of people that may only get to go once think they need to make this the most profound experience of their life. And let me be very clear that ISD has been a profound experience for me. Um, the first time I went to ISTE was in 2006 in San Diego. Not only was that but my first time in, in, in the city of San Diego, which itself was a, a wonderful, meaningful experience, but um, I learned a lot uh, during that particular conference. And that's when Steve Harganon was still running the open source pavilion at ISTE, which is no longer there. They do other types of events, but that perspective changed my mind quite a bit. And I also figured out um, at that conference, I really started plugging into the notion both of Web 2.0 as a concept and now somewhat of a dated one, and also the notion of uh, web participation, web publishing. And I'm not sure if I'd be where um, I am today if I wasn't inspired by speakers and individuals I heard there. And to be clear, more than half the sessions I went to probably weren't really worth my time, not because they weren't good sessions. It's because I just didn't find the right stuff for me. And I think my big mistake was I wanted to see everything at ISTE. So pick a theme you're interested in. Go to more than one session on that same theme, understanding that if you hear multiple folks on the same topic, you're probably going to get some interesting perspectives. Um, very much uh, uh, take advantage of events that are there, and I've not had an opportunity to spend much more than a couple minutes looking at and 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 thinking about and processing through the um, uh, amazing side events that are there, but that's also worth some opportunities. But, um, you know, uh, pick a couple of topics to engage in and then feel okay that you didn't make it to absolutely everything. 
Um, one other thing I'd also encourage you to do is keep an eye on Twitter. If you're not a Twitter person in general, conferences, especially big conferences, is the best place to, to, to utilize Twitter. You'll never, ever keep up with that flow. Hundreds, if not thousands of, of tweets a minute from this you know, very tech-savvy audience. But more importantly, um, there have been a lot of opportunities that have really nothing to do with the conference itself that prevent the, or present themselves on Twitter. For example, um, Alice Keeler from California, the Google Apps uh, advocate um, that works with the ed tech team, she will oftentimes, and I would have no doubt that she's probably running um, uh, coffee meetings early in the morning, uh, provide you a cup of joe and some conversation related to ed tech. Um, those events uh, are not directly related to ISTE, but could provide you an opportunity to see other like-minded people in a similar sized audience, small, so that you can be able to you know, engage with others. And so keep an eye on Twitter um, as a, a matter of course. And in addition to the to the official ISTE hashtag, follow the not at ISTE hashtag. Um, that continues to be popular, and many folks will, um, you know, link to things and, and other presentations and stuff. There, there, you know, have sometimes been, you know, some <coughs> some live feeds and and stuff like that. But it's just a kind of a feeding frenzy of of tech tips. And in addition to you know the live feed, it's nice now. I mean, I'll say that I I, I enjoy the fact that. Twitter curates a little bit, and so when you you know log in and haven't been on for a while, it's going to make suggestions what it thinks are going to be the the tweets that you're going to want to see first. And I also like how you know when you're viewing a hashtag, it doesn't default to latest; uh, it goes to top. And so, not that that's going to necessarily uh, always be the best, but it's going to probably be some some things that are going to be of interest to a lot of people if, because they're going to have received a lot of likes or retweets. So right. not, a, not just use a good hashtag. Um, one more thing I'd say is ISTE's added some events in the last few years, uh, like some Ignite talks. And um, there's a teach meet that happens each year, which is a little bit like an ed camp uh, in as far as, as people, you know, on a somewhat impromptu basis. Uh, presenting some short presentations. I really like the Ignite sessions and then some other sessions that are that are kind of tasters. So ISTE will uh, select some sessions that they think will be very popular. I don't actually remember what they call this. I had a chance to participate in one of these last year. Um, but you sort of give a... Um, you know, three minute elevator pitch of what your session is going to be about and get a few slides to do that. And that's a, a really good opportunity uh, to, you know, learn about some other sessions and some other people that might be of interest. Um, I definitely select sessions at ISTE now um, based based upon, you know, folks that I, I follow or that I'm familiar with, um, sometimes people that I've heard before. Um, and I really like to think about ed tech sessions as falling into three categories. There's the awareness session. Hey, I didn't know about that. That's cool to learn about the existence of that. There's the, um, you know, hands-on um, where I'm actually getting to, to do it as, as a student. And, and then there might be one that's even, you know, a deeper dive into that. So ISTE um, can have some of that second level hands-on, um, but generally it's about awareness. And so uh, learning about sessions that you want to attend and then, you know, new tools and things like that. Uh, it's, it's basically a tremendous discovery engine. And so that's where Twitter hashtags like like the ISTE 18 and the not at ISTE hashtag, you know, can serve as a discovery engine for that. Um, and then the, the general plug is just to, to find folks to follow. Um, I, I actually think this is the pinned tweet. I think I put this up last night, but I said, um, you know, who do you follow? Um, who's, 
what do they notice in the world that you want to notice and attend to as well? These are critical questions for us all in our attention economy. And this is a huge reason why I use Twitter lists and Flipboard specifically. So right. the learning, you know, can very, really be amplified, especially being able to make a face to face connection with somebody perhaps who you've, you followed or, you know, you've connected with. Um, I know a couple of years ago, my wife, um, she had been following Jonathan Wiley, who's an Iowa based educator for years and learning from him and, you know, arranged a meetup. We met at, uh, you know, Einstein's bagel for breakfast or whatever, but that's like one of the highlights of the whole thing, you know, was getting to, to visit with him in person and, and chat. And, um, so, you know, don't uh, miss out on those kinds of opportunities. And sometimes, you know, there's ad hoc things that are, that are taking place now with, with hashtags, et cetera, as well. Um, I, I really don't find myself spending a lot of time in the vendor hall. Some people just absolutely love that. Um, you know, different strokes for different folks. So uh, right. don't, well, don't, let me, let me provide ahead. an alternative view to that. So uh, that's something I definitely wanted to mention. One of the things that in a, uh, a West made a reference to the boat show nature of ISTE earlier. And let's be honest, ISTE of beyond the sessions is a ginormous boat show, right? There's a huge vendor floor, which there are, hundreds if not thousands of vendors there. Um, but I've changed my tune a little bit on vendors the last couple of years, and I want to talk very quickly about where why my relationship has changed with them. So the first one is that I do know partially because I am, um, you know, in the uh, – uh, I, I help plan a conference every year uh, with NCCE. One of the things I know about that is that vendors pay money to come to the conference, which takes down your fees to attend the conference. And so that, that's an important first point. And a couple of years ago, I think it was ISTE Atlanta, where they're actually talking about that the cost of the conference from just a a um a price standpoint for your registration fee would effectively double if not triple if vendors weren't involved in that process so that that's one thing to understand the other piece too is that um you don't get overwhelmed by the vendors the things changed for me since i've become an administrator and it's true that I have some buying power now, and that does make my conversations with vendors a little different than when I was just a, kind of a wide-eyed uh, younger teacher that was that was looking at products that my school would never buy and that I could never personally afford. But I think starting strategic conversations with vendors is very important, and they're oftentimes in a very positive sales mode at at a conference. And so you could oftentimes find out about future pieces of the tool. And if you're using an existing tool that's purchased by you personally or by your district, go find that vendor and let them know about that. And they can oftentimes hook you up with opportunities that you might otherwise not have. Uh, lots of companies uh, do, and there was a, uh, uh, I think Wes and I featured this article, uh, the New York Times article, I think it was earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, that talked about that there's been some questions about um, uh, teachers and districts that are accepting payment either through product or through travel um, to become ambassadors of various tools. And I do think there's some shady things that they go on occasionally in that realm, but you should think about if you have a tool that you're very passionate about, connect with that company. They might be able to provide you uh, f access to future tools or future uh, features earlier. Um, you can oftentimes get on mail lists that might provide discounts for you to either purchase the product personally or to help advertise it to your district. 
And then also, you know, uh, even though the free internet world is awesome, there are a lot of amazing tools out there that do make teaching and learning better when applied judiciously in a classroom. And you as a teacher owe yourself that opportunity to find out more about those pieces. So visit Google if you're a Google school. Visit the Microsoft booth if you're a Microsoft school. Go learn about Makey Nakey if that's something that's new to you. Or um, if you know that you're bu- you're getting a new building in your district, for example, uh, every year uh, my partner in crime, Mike Gusnelli, and I like to go to um, the Steelcase booth because they have all the wonderful and um, uh, uh, significantly priced equipment uh, that is there. And you can kind of see what the future of school desks look like. There's still, last year, <laughs> Mike and I fell in love with this little pod thing that you uh, you go inside of it. It's a little kind of lounge chair with a desk that pulls up to you. And you can actually pull this curtain shut. And it's like, I want that for my office so that I can put it out in the open and go into my little pod and shut it and just get my work done, right? But those things are, are very valuable. And, and, you know, it is an overwhelming floor, an absolutely overwhelming floor. But that doesn't mean that uh, there is an opportunity for you to learn some interesting stuff on the floor. And Tony Vincent will probably be doing some more periscopes from from the floor. And, you know, it's a, it's a great place to document and share. So seize the opportunity to create some media and share that media and add your own uh, bit of uh, a filtering and, and flavor to it. And and to echo what you just said, you know, spending even a few minutes with someone who is very adept using a tool, a platform that maybe you're familiar with and, and have used, I mean, it can just, it can be outstanding to be able to have that opportunity. And, and sometimes that does happen on the, on the vendor floor um, when, when different folks are showcasing tools and products, um, you know, it happens, it happens in sessions as well. Um, so have fun and nope. I will have to follow the, follow the hashtags this year. So absolutely. Okay, well, there's some actual news this week other than, you know, uh, many teachers are descending upon Chicago uh, to go to ISTE. Where would you like to start this week, Wes? You know, I think I'd like to start uh, with a couple articles I put under AI First World. Um, I actually heard about this this morning on NPR and then checked out the article. So this is from The Verge on June 18th yesterday, what it's like to watch an IBM AI successfully debate humans. And so knowing your uh, background and interest in debate, I thought you would find this interesting. Um, I do echo what they said at NPR that wasn't really that impressive visually uh, because it basically is a black monolith that looks like, you know, uh, an Alexa, or I shouldn't say her name, Madam A speaker or whatever. Um, but it, it followed debate protocol. And so there were, were millions of articles. Um, and I, I'm going to guess that this is Watson. The NPR article actually got it wrong because Watson, you know, has, uh, was the, was the computer that, um, def- that, the played Jeopardy and defeated the the Jeopardy champion. Google created um, AlphaGo and then AlphaZero, which, you know, have, have defeated um, the, the uh, Japanese game Go champions. So this is back to IBM. So this is probably Watson and, and their AI, but it actually analyzes all of the dis- different articles and then puts together some cogent positions, but it listens to the debater and then responds as well um, and actually, there was some humor involved here where it said, you know, I, as you might expect, am a very strong proponent of technology. <laughs> um, and so uh, I was thinking about, you know, research papers. We've had, you know, these different companies that will say, hey, you need a research paper in 15 minutes, you know, but but these kinds of technologies that are going to be able to access vast swaths of information and then cobble together 
um, you know, uh, a presentation. But the, but this, this whole idea of it responding to the debate and everything, very, very interesting. And, and we're going to continue to see, I think, this kind of performance level AI, right? Where it's, a competition, but this one was so interesting because it wasn't narrowly bound with rules, right? Chess and in jeopardy to a degree, although that's a little more open-ended with the kinds of, of uh, factual questions that it's asking. But certainly, Go are you know bounded games, but a debate is is quite a bit different. So that was one A article, and then the second one. This is a blow your mind article. This is from Harper's Magazine, their July 2018 issue, and it's called known unknowns. And so it's talking about the limits of what AI is going to be able to do. And just this one quotation uh, for something called zero shot translation. So again, it's talking about Google and it says, after the activation of Google Translate's neural network, researchers realized the system was capable of translating not merely between languages, but across them. For example, a network trained on Japanese English and English Korean text is capable of generating Japanese Korean translations without ever passing through English. This is called zero shot translation and it implies the existence of an interlingual representation, a meta language known only to the computer. So that article starts to talk about machine learning and the way in which we're going to have these black box algorithms that we're actually not going to necessarily be able to understand. There's going to be stuff we're going to put in. There's going to be stuff that's going to come out. But man, I just thought that alone, if you're going to you know, share that with a foreign language teacher, uh, pondering language and computers and the ways in which we're going to have... Uh, these capabilities, you know, at, at our fingertips. So Jason, are you ready to have hybrid debate? You know, that's what Gary Kasparov came up with after he was defeated as the world chess champion. Um, he, he, they re-entered the next year saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be augmented with, with computer technology. So I guess <coughs> debaters are already augmented quite a bit um, with uh, technology. Do you fear for the future of debate now that Watson is thrown down the towel? Um, I still think debate will always be a, a wonderfully uh, human exercise. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, the robots right now could beat the snot out of humans in most, most competitive sports, and yet we continue to have competitions related to that. I think it is a massive push forward in the ability of, and I'm going to use this term understanding that I'm, I'm maybe not necessarily breaking rules, but um, would, um, uh, you know, maybe challenge some people's notions, but it does push along quite, dramatically the the notion of, of computers being able to quote unquote think right one of the things we oftentimes uh, talk about is that uh, you know computers are very limited in that they can oftentimes only analyze the analytical data uh, presented to them and make judgments that are somewhat a logarithmic or, or mathematically based, whereas debate itself is, is, is oftentimes much more nuanced than that. And so I'm assuming that, that part of the long-term strategy here is that as the debate happens, it takes its opponent's notions, assuming we're talking about a human here, and you – you know, recognizes the strategies and adapts appropriately. That is um, interesting, maybe concerning if computers get that because they start to be able to to engage in more nuanced thinking. Um, one of the things that I always think about in terms of, and and, and part of this is uh, because I you know work at a, a distance learning program, and so online learning, as controversial as it is. Oftentimes, uh, people perceive they can do more than they can actually do, right? Like it's oftentimes limited in its ability to 
Um, you maybe adapt or change unless you have a significant uh, uh, a piece of software that does the heavy lifting for you there. But it is very interesting to me the notion that a computer can, you know, look at what is presented to it, uh, utilize a set set of research about what the next step is, and then can in this make it make a comment or even offer a solution to that. And if that becomes you know something that's available more widely. That's a very interesting notion of learning, right? We talk a lot about personalized learning, um, uh, good or bad. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about personalized learning is that you can uh, be very quickly shunned if you somehow argue against personalized learning because who's against personalizing learning, right? But I think there's some debate there we need to be having. But in a world where the tech tools are able to collect evidence and make good judgments, which, you know, is part of the point of artificial intelligence in the, good, uh, in the first place, that makes it a very interesting maybe nuanced tool that you could utilize in something as difficult as personalized learning. So uh, I will continue to, to keep an eye on this, as I know um, a lot of tech savvy folks will. Um, but, you know, it goes back to, um, you know, coming to a smartphone near you, right? That's something that we should be aware of. Um, it helps teach students that's coming. And I don't think it makes education worthless or the our educational process is worthless by a search of the imagination, but certainly things makes things more interesting when this technology exists. Well, we've got eight articles and links under the heading data and privacy technology correction. For those who may be no, new to the show, do you want to give us your, your elevator pitch of what the technology correction is and then maybe start us off on some of those because those are definitely some important articles I think we want to touch on tonight. Yep, absolutely. I, I'm trying to coin the term technology correction because if it happens and the term is adopted there, I just want credit for it. But technology correction is a notion that post 2016 election um, and this acknowledgement from uh, many, many different sources that technology in an unlimited way may be uh, harmful to humans in whatever way you want to talk about, we are starting to see now companies and technology platforms try to respond to this by pulling back or kind of heading into the other direction. And so I think this technology correction concept is pretty um, um, uh, important and something we need to spend some some quality time uh, taking a look at. So uh, first and foremost, we I had this article last week, and it's pretty great. Um, uh, and I, I actually heard this guy speak on, on a couple of Twit podcasts, Barathun Thurston. I'm probably screwing up your name, sir, but um, wrote a really excellent Medium article. And one thing that I've said in the podcast in the past, and I strongly believe this, is that every company is collecting data about you. The difference between many companies and Google and Facebook is that Google and Facebook give you a method of checking that data and oftentimes turning off those data flows. And so um, this article goes into to, to extreme detail to try to help you navigate the interfaces in Facebook and Google and help you see what these two tools have on you and then make good decisions about what happens with that data. And um, this has to be you know, 15,000, 20,000 words in its, uh, uh, its size. But this article does an extremely good job of kind of walking you through the somewhat complex process of accessing what these tools have on your behalf. And so I would certainly recommend that if you haven't played around with these tools or you've played around with these tools and you find them frustrating, this article will give you a certain sense of that um, um, uh, of that process. So absolutely, um, Medium is a good place to, or I'm sorry, this Medium article is a good place to go. Um, 
And by the way, Wes, I we've talked about this a couple of times. Remind me, have you dug through like Facebook's data on you, and did you find anything interesting about that process? I have made some adjustments. A couple of weeks ago, I had shared an article about you know how to how to adjust your privacy settings, and so I did quite a bit. Now I haven't made my profile you know private. I still have a public profile. Um, when I downloaded my data, in fact, that was part of that. I had deleted a ton of stuff and Facebook still appeared to have a ton of stuff on there. Like I thought I had deleted kind of all of my likes and all that stuff. And so that's a, that's an interesting question about all this as well, right? Like once I have left a digital footprint, you know, GDPR or not, can I actually take it back and, and erase it? So um, I've done a little bit. Um, I'll point out one of the articles. It's not an article, but it's a website that I put under the section, um, how to gdpr.me. And so this lists, um, you know, all the expected social media sites along with some others. And when you select it, um, it gives you uh, data on um, what they um, are collecting about you and uh, how you can go about requesting the information and if it's possible to, you know, delete it or not. And so I thought that was that was helpful. How about you? Have you made some adjustments to more, you know, Facebook and more or, or, or what sites? Um, I kept all my data in Google as is. And part of the reason why is that I feel like I have a pretty good sense of why that data is being used. And I'll give you an example of this. I am extremely comfortable with the location tracking that Google does because I am all in on Google Maps. And so for me, um, I like that tool and that tool provides me a great method for navigation. And also I like the fact that it keeps my location history because as a travel buff, I do like to know that, you know, on August 19th, uh, 2014, I was hanging around Iceland, for example, right? Like that's a, that's fun for me. And I think that's a, a good use of that tool. Um, Facebook's been a little different for me and I was a little creeped out by the Cambridge Analytica stuff. And as it turns out, none of my data was taken by Cambridge Analytica. So that that's good news uh, from that perspective. But um, one of the things I was concerned about was that I, I do think the Internet echo chamber issue is a real issue. Right. Like I don't want to be just fed information that it thinks I'm going to already think because I I mean, I purposely go to. Um, sources that I know disagree with me, partially because I maybe I'm just trying to raise my own blood pressure. But the other piece is, is that I, I like to know what the arguments on the other side are. I think it goes back to maybe my history as a competitive debater and debate coach that um, part of why I think what I think is because I spend time looking at alternative views to make sure that I'm headed in the right direction. So for me, digging around Facebook and making sure that it, it identified me correctly was an exercise to say that I probably should go outside of Facebook because I don't want it just feeding me information that I already know. Um, and as it turns out, that was the case. Um, I've also thought about making my profile private, but, um, you know, I, and this is going to sound weird, but, uh, because I think this is kind of the excuse making we do when we talk about privacy is that there's nothing on my Facebook profile that is part of the public profile. And you can go in and ask what your pu public profile looks like that I'm that uncomfortable people knowing about, right? Like, I think that's part of, um, you know, we, we've talked about digital footprint in the past, although that seems like such a, qu a quaint notion in light of what happens in 2018. 
routine, right? But, you know, I like the fact that my digital footprint on Facebook shows things that I'm comfortable with and I think are good representations of who I want to be perceived as on the Internet. But, um, you know, I think it's a good exercise, and this article does an excellent job of this, of going through these, these pieces, not just as an educator, but I think also learning about how you can tweak your own data is a good thing to also share with students. And I used to actually teach a workshop when I was still in the face-to-face classroom. It's a long story about where it fit in, but it was an hour-long workshop. I talked about, uh, I talked with students about digital footprint, and one of the things I kept encouraging them to do is that you may choose to have your information more public than another person. That's fine. Just make that choice consciously, right? And, and bring students in to talk about them. Um, and, and I'm reminded that I, I, I came up with an idea with some students in 2007 or 8, and I think it's called bird dogging now, or I don't really know what, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the kids call stuff, but it's the notion of creating a fake profile that, that, that mimics someone else so you can try to get private information from a third party. I think it is bird dogging, although now I don't understand what that really means. But, um, for example, there was a case a couple of weeks ago that was highlighted where, um, someone created a profile, um, uh, that had a prominent uh, a prominent person in a community and they put the profile on Tinder and maybe it was Tinder, maybe it was like eHarmony, one of the, the dating or, or um, hookup sites. And the idea was, was they, they went after a teacher in the building trying to get the teacher to send them, you know, uh, as you can imagine, risque information to use against uh, that particular teacher. And as it turns out, the teacher uh, sent a photo that is not something we would like to think teachers send photos of, right? And the teacher ultimately was punished for that because, you know, the, you know things happened that were, were inappropriate. And I think just making people conscious of, you know, a bit of cynicism about these tools and everyone that, that adds you as a friend with a picture that you're familiar with may not be that person. I think that's a um, something to be you know extremely aware of. And, you know, with, with these different articles we talk about each week, we'll, we'll talk about the educational lens. And one of the biggest things that occurs to me with respect to Facebook and, and all of this with news feeds is I think we really want to develop um, our own and our students' capabilities to curate our own feeds, you know, to not, you know, just turn on mainstream news. That's like Neil Postman 101 is don't just, right. you know, turn on the boob tube and just, you know, accept and watch whatever is being delivered to you. Um, today, even though we have incredible tools at our disposal, a lot of folks will, I think, basically just accept what Facebook is providing with their feed. Now they'll shape that to, to, um, you know, in a significant degree with the things that they like or the things they choose to hide or who they unfollow. Uh, but still, it's uh, a lot of it is a black box in terms of that algorithm. So right. that's why I continue to be drawn to Twitter lists and Flipboard and, you know, this ability of of being able to uh, shape and, and, and filter and direct the feeds of, of information, the flows of information. Um, and then, you know, sometimes that that's leading to serendipitous learning, but it's also very intentional because, again, if, if you've got folks that, that you want to follow and that you're interested in that are passionate about, you know, things of interest. Or I, I really have enjoyed following a Twitter list that I made of all of our faculty and staff who are on Twitter. Now there are some who mainly are tweeting about, you know, the Oklahoma city thunder basketball and whatever. Um, we've got a teacher who's an avid storm chaser and into meteorology. And, you know, so I learned a lot about uh, local weather as well as, as well as weather all over, but 
anyway, that, that idea of saying, I want to curate this. I know these are people that I want to, you know, be, you know, connected with on, on a thought level. So that's one of, one of the thoughts that I, that I uh, connect here. Um, another article I put under this, uh, this series is from Reuters on June 13th. Apple to undercut popular law enforcement tool for cracking iPhones. I was actually really glad to see this because as uh, longtime listeners to the show may know, I'm still in the Android world with my, my Android phone, maybe, maybe changing this summer. <clears throat> but, you know, based on going to this, uh, on this trip to, to uh, Egypt in November, um, you know, started to do a lot of reading about, you know, what kind of data can be taken, et cetera. And so there are these tools that are available not only to hackers, but to, uh, Homeland Security and, and, uh, you know, customs officials in various countries to uh, basically just plug in your iPhone or, or other smartphone and be able to suck all that data off. And so what this says is that Apple is going to be changing its iPhone settings so that if you have not unlocked your phone in an hour, it's going to disable the USB port. And so that means when you're traveling, you might be keeping your phone off and um, letting that, you know, take effect. Now, having read a lot of these articles and being more familiar with, you know, U.S. customs officials, customs officials can say, hey, you, you need to unlock this phone. You need to give right. me your password. You know, they have really a lot of power. And so um, this isn't just with an eye to the United States. It's an eye to other places as well. Um, but I was glad to see that. And, you know, this whole idea about, you know, whether it's backdoors or, or hacks and the ability of, of security agencies, as well as, you know, folks who may be um, clearly more malicious in their in, intention um, on what they want to do with your data. I was actually glad to to see Apple doing that. And I think you mentioned last week that the Tim Cook um, media storm, you know, and just how right. much he's getting out there uh, talking about Apple technology and the stance that Apple is taking on on privacy and all that. So we've talked before about how it seems like the AI game is going to be probably won by Google over Apple, just, you know, from a data standpoint. But, right. you know, when you look at how many folks are talking to Siri on a daily basis, it's not like, you know, there's a shortage of, of data, uh, especially with regard to speech data that Apple is working with. So anyway, those are, those are both uh, related and good, good articles to see as far as resources relating to privacy and the correction Absolutely so. And then two other quick ones. These are just quick hits. Uh, a great New York Times article from June 13th about um, how your Wi-Fi security probably is terrible. And I'm not surprised by this. And in fact, uh, I spent some time this past weekend in uh, my hometown, Great Falls, Montana, to see my parents uh, for Father's Day. And I noticed you know, two things. First, um, that a router, that a Wi-Fi router I had set up for them in 2011 hadn't had a, 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 an update since 2011. So I went in and, and updated the software, and I'm probably going to end up buying them a new router just so that we're uh, good to go there. But um, the other piece that was uh, also interesting recently is that I had a conversation um, with a colleague at the University of Montana who said that uh, he had received a number of notices from uh, a cable company um, because he had been accused of, of piracy and figured out that uh, that it, through negotiating with the cable company that his Wi-Fi router had been hacked and that there were several people. He had thought it was just slow internet and, and called to complain to the company and they looked on there to find out that his bandwidth was maxed out 
Sabotime by, you know, dozens of connections that were not his and his home. But um, great New York Times article about how to fix Wi-Fi problems and, and, and changes you can make to your home Wi-Fi. And then the one that I'm not surprised about at all, this one's a couple of weeks old, but uh, teams apparently, teens are apparently dumping Facebook for YouTube, Instagram, and Snapchat. Uh, that's not a surprise to anyone that's actually been around a team lately because, um, uh, Snapchat is very much the location for that. Secondarily, Instagram and then YouTube. I still don't think of YouTube as a social network. I understand why a lot of people do. Um, but, um, you know, to me, consuming media on YouTube is not really as, as social as, as, as it probably could be. Um, but it's not a surprise to me that pe- the people are leaving Facebook. And so I do wonder if, Facebook is going to have the power that uh, it does now, you know, 10, 15 years from now. I mean, I know we're um, nearly 15 years into the Facebook experiment, but the reality is is that Facebook is um, very much um, a part of adult lives now, and kids seem to be going different pathways down. Maybe it's the digital footprint piece. Maybe it's the interface of the others, but uh, very interesting that those are headed in that direction. I'm going to drop in a related article that the the one on the router made me think of. Um, I'm getting more of my news from Google News and my Google Assistant, um, which I've actually just I, I'm just straight tech news now. I was getting you know national news and stuff, and although I listen to the uh, the daily um, the NPR uh, podcast, I absolutely absolutely love that. In fact, my geek of the week comes from that. Um, but this is one I heard tonight, and this was an interview on Fresh Air with um, the author David Sanger of a new book called The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And the article, um, or actually this is a replay, it's a 37-minute podcast, um, Journalist Warn Cyber Attacks Present, A Perfect Weapon Against Global Order. And it and it ties directly to what you were talking about as far as the, the firmware updates and the aging routers the degree to which security services of Russia and China alone have penetrated, you know, um, residential uh, routers. That was a couple weeks ago. We had the FBI attack talking about half a million routers infected. Um, and what Sanger is talking about here, oh, my gosh, it's just really chilling. I mean, it, it, I, it makes me want to make some long-range plans to have a home in a rural area with some some solar power I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to become a survivalist and it's just, but I mean, the dangers of our, of our electrical grid of, uh, you know, significant things happening, um, on, on the cyber front, uh, it, it's just gigantic. So I probably, we always run that risk when we're going to, to start listening about, you know, cyber attacks and cyber threats as we're going to risk scaring ourselves to death and, and feeling like, you know, are we chicken little? But um, wow, he connects so many dots to, bat, to, to 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 different stories, whether it's Stuxnet or you know going back to the elections or you know pre-election. How, why did the Russians do all this stuff? Well, they you know tried it all in the Ukraine, and the Obama administration had done very little basically to confront it, even when they you know knew it was happening. And talks about how they just thought Hillary was going to win, and so they would. You know, to avoid uh, being being criticized about trying to throw the election or whatever, they'd, they'd let, you know, have Hillary win. And then the plan to come down to the Russians would be something they would pass along to her. Well, guess what? That that didn't happen. And so ah, it's just there is there's there are other worlds out there in terms of what's happening with the the incredibly hostile nature of computing 
And those of us yep. that have an opportunity to serve in an administrative role with a school or other organization, uh, work with firewalls, work with, you know, phishing attacks and um, just just malware threats and the ways in which we are are. It's a very, very dynamic environment in terms of trying to protect your network. So um, I guess that's the case maybe with all kinds of law enforcement protection is there's always folks that are much more aware of, of the darkness out there and the danger. Um, but anyway, I, I highly commend that audio interview. And uh, I'm going to add the David Sanger book, The Perfect Weapon, to my uh, reading list. I don't know if I'll get that in this summer. But important stuff, and that's up, that, take it to the personal level, right? There's the school level, but there's the, hey, how about my folks? You know, how about my router at my house? How about my parents and my friends as well, right? If we're not talking to those we know about Internet safety, um, you know, whether that's two-step verification on passwords or, you know, updating a router, et cetera, um, you know, it's... We, we, we need to be that friend who is helping share those things because, uh, you know, keeping a password secure, you know, if we could keep somebody from, from having an identity theft uh, situation, we're probably not going to stop a massive cyber attack initiated by, you know, the nation state of, of Russia or China or whatever, North Korea, um, just because we've updated the firmware in our router. But, um, you know, there, there are personal attacks that are happening with that as well. And that was something I think that we had as a follow-on article to that FBI warning about half a million routers. It wasn't just saying, hey, nation states are going to use this to launch denial of service attacks. They're also using it to collect information that's being sold on the dark web, you know, to individually target users as well. So there is your dose of cybersecurity warning and uh, fear-mongering for today. Yep, there we go. Okay, uh, next I want to talk a little bit about a follow-up from last week. I mentioned last week that uh, the host of WMYC's uh, wonderful podcast, Note to Self, has uh, jumped ship along with her executive producer, Jen Poignant. I'm talking about Manoush Zamarodi, and they announced a new podcast venture last week that uh, their podcast company is called Stable Genius Productions, and they have a new podcast called ZigZag. And I'll be honest... Um, I did not expect their new project to go in this direction. So they announced last week that they had jumped ship, which is something that had been going on for several months at that point. And then they were going to start a new venture, and that's the ZigZag podcast, zigzagpod.com. But when I listened to the podcast late last week, and I had downloaded them to my, to, to my um, um, uh, 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 podcast app, one of the things I was not expecting was that they were going to tell a story about how they had secured a financial uh, commitment from a nonprofit to do work in deep journalism about how technology impacts culture. The money fell through, and so they needed to search for a new model, and somehow that turned into working with a, um, a block chain news startup something 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 and um i i i I would not be able to explain it because i honestly um even got through the two episodes of their podcast and only had a loose idea what was going on i think maybe that's part of the point but zigzag is going to be about um and and jen's journey through starting a women-owned media company which is super awesome and 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 kudos for taking that 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 action but now they have decided to to repurpose and and hook up with a platform called Civil, which is at civil.co. And I, I don't exactly get it yet, but the two episodes of the podcast, the first one is the narrative about um, you know why they jumped and and story about how things kind of fell apart with their jump, and then 
Um, chapter two or the second episode, it's about 30 minutes long. It's called blockchain block what question mark. And it is, there's awkward panting, which is my dog. Hey, Burks, I, I can't deal with you right now, buddy. Um, the, the piece of it that's, that's super interesting about this is that, um, there, there, it, it, the actual company rolling out the civil, um, uh, uh, company actually also is issuing a cryptocurrency and the cryptocurrency will have blockchain involved in the journalism and to help fund the journalism. Um, it is mind blowing to listen to this hour long of radio. So if I do think the eventual work will move back into the wheelhouse of uh, note to self, which is, uh, you know, the idea of technology and culture, but the you know, wacky wild road they're going down right now is essentially utilizing blockchain, which is the technology that is under the Bitcoin movement. Um, so we've talked about here in the past because there are great, uh, uh, I think there are great implications for blockchain and education, but um, it, it's worthy of your listen, especially if any of these topics uh, technology and culture or technology's impact on journalism or blockchain. If you have any interest in those technologies, I strongly recommend giving a listen to um, the ZigZag podcast. Awesome. Uh, I'll talk a little podcast in, in Geek to the Week. Um, we got about 10 minutes toward the top of the hour. D- definitely want to mention a couple huge, huge articles. Uh, Microsoft has bought Flipgrid, and they have made everything free. Um, there's an article from GeekWire on June 18th talking about this. In fact, they're giving prorated discounts to anybody who purchased a subscription in the past. And I guess this is um, a play for Microsoft to get some of that user-created content and just teacher, um, you know, just there's like 20 million users of Flipgrid or something like that. And and so Microsoft is, is trying to, to make plays in education, uh, doesn't have Google Classroom, you know, doesn't have Seesaw. Um, so... I, you know, Flip, Flipgrid is a, is a really powerful platform. Um, but the other thing I want to point out in this article, I didn't realize a couple uh, other free tools had gone paid. And so they referenced an EdSurge article from April 5th saying Padlet's price update riles teachers, raises questions about the sustainability of freemium. I didn't realize that Padlet uh, is now a paid service. Um, it, it freezes all the Padlets you have, but you can only create three new ones. Um, which, boy, that that's a bummer. Uh, I'm one of those professional development people that have used Padlet, you know, a ton throughout the years. And again, I understand the need to monetize. Um, but the other one that was mentioned here, and I think perhaps, Jason, you had talked about this. Amazon had a service called 10 Marks. This yep. is an article from GeekWire on April 2nd. And so they've just abruptly decided to shut down. In fact, their their Twitter is supposed to go off here on June 30th. And rather than sell or whatever, I mean, they've just dumped it. So all that content and interactivity and everything is just, it's gone. So that was a, a pretty, um, I think, significant article. Um, any thoughts there as far as Flipgrid, Microsoft, or, or those other tools, Jason? Um, well, I mean, I would say that, and we've had the conversation before about understanding the limits of freemium, especially now that companies, I think, are uh, at least self-conscious, if not openly rebelling against, you know, data as a uh, uh, data as a um, 
a, a method of monetizing their services, but I mean, it goes back to, and I'm, I'm sure that Wes has a half dozen example of these. I know I have a half dozen of these, but if you rely on a free tool, they may go away at some point. And that's where, I mean, in the same way that journalism, I think, is struggling because they started free and then couldn't figure out how the model worked when there was no money left to pay for the people that, 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 that engage in those resources. I think education is the same is same uh, potential panic here because I think the the internet is advertised as free, right? And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of interesting free resources that have good economic models that can provide you tools or content for your classroom. But our reliance on that a long time ago and putting our, our, our focus only on hardware on, uh, uh, and, and bandwidth as opposed to software, assuming that the tools will be free online, I think we'll have a, a reckoning at some point. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I am challenged by the notion that not every tool is going to be worth paying money for, for a school-wide implementation, right? Like I've been part of discussions both in schools I've taught in, schools where I've been pulled into discussions to find out if we want to spend, you know, $7,000 to get every kid a, a so-and-so account, and if only a third teacher is going to use the account, or if little a time or energy is going to put into how to integrate that tool into a classroom, it's probably not worth it. I do think you're going to find... Uh, groups going towards what Padlet's doing and say that you know, we can offer a tiny freemium product, but if you're utilizing this as a critical tool in your classroom, there's no way we can help you with that without you poning up some, some cash. So right. I do think it's an important evolution in, in the internet and what the internet does for schools and students. Definitely. And there's stuff worth worth paying for. And we'll see this at ISTE. You know, book creator as well as explain everything have, have found these tiered models of, yep. um, you know, having hosting and offering additional you know, features that you're going to be able to utilize if, if you pay a reasonable subscription. And so, yeah, we're going to see, see more of that. Um, another article, and I want to do a shout out to Tech News Weekly, which is a Twit podcast. Uh, really enjoy that one. I've got that one on my uh, Google News feed. And so I listen to that. I think they uh, broadcast on Thursdays and then I hear the podcast. Um, they're talking gaming in this GameSpot article from June 14th, uh, I, think, I think they actually had the author on their show um, interviewing, is titled E3 2018, the conference uh, for gaming that just wrapped up. Telltale uh, mar making Stranger Things game as Minecraft heads to Netflix. And that's a bit of a misnomer, and I've got some clarifications there. So Netflix is not streaming games, but there is something called Minecraft Story Mode. And so Netflix does have uh, remote control driven sort of choose your own adventure um, stories that are inside Minecraft. And so very limited access within Netflix. But there are several articles here that really it's talking about some huge things. This Venture Beat June 13th article says Netflix won't stream real games, but EA, Google, and Microsoft will. And it's kind of talking about the convergence of, of the planets here in terms of what is, what is about to happen with games. So you've pretty much needed a console in order to do streaming games, but because you now have the hardware capable of rendering 4K video streams, you know, in your house, because bandwidth is increasing and the 5G revolution is, is just around the corner, right? It's going to be really interesting in a year or two and beyond for us to be talking about bandwidth because, you know, we may be over cellular 5G. I, I don't know, right. it, you know, if we're going to see the, the landline, you know, cable modem, AT&T, DSL, UVerse 
you know, how are they going to be able to provide that level of bandwidth? I don't know. So they're saying that a sea change is on the horizon for the industry. Over the next few years, major technology advances are going to enable publishers to stream fully rendered games directly over broadband and phone networks to subscribers, enabling high-end PC quality games to be played on almost anything with a modern screen. And so it talks about the bottlenecks. Um, I, I just was like, wow, that's a big deal. So take the educational lens to this. You know, where are kids in our schools learning how to create games, how to make their own games? This is gigantic. This is not going away. We love to play games as human beings. The screens and platforms that we have to play those games are just gonna continue to increase in power and number. Yes, we're going to need to talk about the backlash, the, the amount of screen time, you know, the addiction, um, all of that. But uh, it's, you know, it's going to be part of our entertainment landscape for ever, I think. I don't see that ever going away. And so I think there are, you know, really compelling ways that we can help students develop important skills and literacies. Uh, yes, we can even tie things into the traditional curriculum if, if we'd like to do that. Um, but where is that happening at your school with gaming and coding. One of my thoughts that I have there. So any other articles you'd like to, to pick up, Jason, before we Geek of the Week it? Yeah, just two quick ones. Uh, these are under the Android Chromebook uh, Google articles of the week. Um, and just for you Android folks, first, there's now a way to text from your computer with Android Messages, which is the stock messaging app in Android. And I have not experimented with this yet because I do not use the stock messaging app in Android. So I'm thinking about actually moving back because I would find a lot of value in a service to be able to text from my computer. I don't like staring at my phone all day and there are times when I need to engage in text messaging with colleagues and or my spouse and it's just not something that um you know is is conducive so I I use a a service uh that I forgot the name of it is called uh AirDroid right now for that purpose is the free tier of AirDroid but it's it's pretty uh meh and I would also say that it it uh, uh doesn't handle um uh, group messaging very well. So uh, very interesting, and so I will play with that. The one app I have had the opportunity to install, though, and um, it is pretty great so far. I, I, I care a lot less about data since I moved to T-Mobile and have a cell phone that allows me unlimited data. And, in fact, I, I learned a little something because we – I may have mentioned this, but we had an exchange student this year, and he did not uh, care as much about data as I did or trying to stay under caps – and this kid was regularly hitting 50 gigs a month um, on his own phone because he preferred it to Wi-Fi, which I kept explaining to them how silly that was. But um, And he didn't care. And uh, he would get throttled down to 3G at 50 gigs. But 50 gigs is still a at lot. 50 gigs? Oh, yeah. my gosh. I know. I know. Um, but, uh, so I, I don't know why I should care about it as much as I do, but, uh, Google has a really great uh, app now. It's called Datally and you can download it and it does two things extremely well. The first thing it does is that allows you to better manage your, uh, network data. Um, and I'm talking about your know, cell phone tower network data and you can, turn off apps that utilize the data. You can turn off all apps. You can have selected number of apps. You can track how much data is utilized by these apps. For example, I figured out yesterday afternoon during lunch that Instagram, when you're on a cellular network, is a massive hog because it downloads, you know, uh, preview images and video data, um, and you can instantly get to, with a, just a couple-minute session, 100 megs of, of 
downloaded data on Instagram, so something you maybe know if your kids are, are constantly hitting your cap. But the other thing it does is that it's got a really great database of uh, open Wi-Fi networks that you can hook to, and you can give feedback back on those. And there, there are a lot of apps that will tell you where Wi-Fi networks are at, but I found it to be an unusually accurate uh, look at Wi-Fi available in Missoula. And so um, I thought it was really interesting. I installed it, and it's been just 24 hours with it. It's already provided me an extraordinary amount of data. So it's in the Play Store. It's called Datally, um, and it's 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 an interesting piece. Um, and while we're doing it, I might as well just jump on my Geek of the Week because it's also related to an Android app. We've reported in the past uh, on this podcast that – um, Adobe Spark is now free for K-12 schools. And it's always been free, but the free tiers had some limitations and it also isn't very well set up for schools and then it collects more data from a typical user than you would be maybe comfortable with, especially in light of new data uh, and privacy laws. But you can set up um, a K-12 version of Spark that uh, collects no data from students and there are some new ways and nuanced ways you can manage those accounts. But the app version of that, uh, it's, it's web-based, but the app version that's been iOS only until today. And now you can download Adobe Spark for Android and I've done it so far, I haven't time to play with it more than just a minute or two. But it's very excited that that wonderfully, I think, very powerful uh, publishing uh, platform is now available to to Android users. So it's in the Play Store now. Um, I link to it in um, uh, the show notes and, uh, you know, create a way, my friends. Awesome. And I will do a shout out as, uh, as an Android user now. It's pretty cool. You can link in your browser to the Play Store, and you can say, hey, install on my device. And I did that, and so now Daedalee is installing over here on my Motorola E4 phone. Um, my Geek of the Week is the Caliphate podcast from the New York Times. Have you listened to any of this, Jason? I, I've listened to half of one just the other day, and it's pretty great. Oh, my gosh. I think this is certainly contemporary wartime journalism at its best. So the Daily which is a fantastic podcast that is produced by the New York Times as well, um, on the weekends has been playing episodes of this. And so I've probably heard about half, um, most recently episode nine. There's one more episode that um, if you're a subscriber, you can listen to now. Um, otherwise, you can just you know wait and listen to it this weekend. Um, it's about the fall of Mosul and, and, and ISIS and the, the creation of the caliphate. They've got interviews with basically kids, you know, young people who um, – were, were recruited or enticed to, you know, travel to the Middle East and to join ISIS um, at some stage of, of their war. And I think, you know, this, this is just something we don't have a really good handle on that, that an entire nation state that was, you know, th that emerged in the Middle East um, in large part because of its global reach. Uh, you know, we, we had terror attacks in Paris and we, you know, Boston and, and other other places around the world, but basically the West couldn't ignore this. And so, anyway, it is it's stunning. And and prisoners, which is episode nine, is the story of um, some of the girls that were kidnapped by ISIS, and then the, the being reunited with their families and the brainwashing that that took place, and and the ways in which if you are starved of all information, you know, you can come to believe what people are telling you. It makes me think about North Korea, actually, and. 
you know, what it would be like if the media faucet was just opened up, you know, on that society, which it, which it hasn't been. So anyway, check right. that out. Caliphate podcast by New York times. And then a quick shout out to Peggy George. Um, she had a great share this past Saturday, um, classroom 2.0 live, which I love and is a regular podcast, which is on hiatus now for the summer. But during the school year is every Saturday at 12 Eastern. Um, their last show of the year is called a bucket list show where people are talking about their bucket list for, for the summer. Just kind of goals and things you're going to read, um, apps you're going to try out. And so hers was this photo mine, uh, photo M Y N E. Very cool tool, uh, that if you're going to be taking entire photo albums and just taking a picture instead of scanning one by one, you know, take that whole page and then, you know, bring those in and just uh, speed up the process of being able to digitize your whole albums. But I've got a link to the Classroom 2.0 bucket list uh, Google Sheet, and it's got all kinds of of great apps and connections. In fact, it gave me a bunch of uh, geeks of the week that I'll probably be talking about in the future. But to not prolong it any further, we will stop there. So, Jason, when people are wanting to follow you at ISTE and hear all of the great new discoveries that you're going to to have, where can they tune in to find you? I will be tweeting uh, from actually two meetings or two two events. Not only will I be at ISTE next week, but I'm going to be going to the state, uh, the National State Education or State Education Technology Directors Association, or CETA as it's called. Um, I'm representing Montana at that meeting this week, and so I'll be going to Chicago on Thursday to meet Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with uh, colleagues from across the 50 states uh, that are in in leadership roles in their state in educational technology. And then uh, Monday, I will start and, and spend a couple of days at ISTE. And you can find me at Tech Savvy Teach, um, or um, I, I may do a blog post or two for the Northwest Council for Computer Education while I'm there. That's blog.ncc.org. But Twitter's probably the best place to find me, and I hope um, that it's as great as it usually is for me. It's a wonderful conference and overwhelming in all the right ways, and I look forward to that. What about you, Wes? Sounds good. Well, I'm W. Fryer on Twitter, and you can find my blog at speedofcreativity.org. I may try to get a podcast. I did a, a little audio recording interview with one of our teachers, our art teacher, and my wife here at the end of school, and I need to get that published. Um, but hopefully some vacation days will be coming up for me, and I will be a little bit less active on the Twitters. But definitely want to thank everybody for tuning in. Remember that you can find us here usually on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain, uh, 3 a.m. or something like that, UTC. But we are available in multiple formats on edtechsr.com. You can download a 32-kilobit audio file or you can get the 360p video version. But if you'd like to see Jason in high definition, you'll need to go to YouTube, and that's where those amazing videos are archived for your viewing and listening pleasure. Please reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, you can use the EdTechSR hashtag during the week if you find an article that you think we would like to take a look at. And until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe. Most likely, we'll be off two weeks, but if you follow us on Twitter, we'll let you know if we end up putting together something for that week of July the 4th.